spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Ready to gobble up some more nerdy goodness. It's episode 190 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Black Friday. Hopefully you got stuffed and got all the great deals that you wanted. Speaking of stuffed, this show's got more stuff in it than your Thanksgiving turkey probably did. That's right. Going to be reviewing Justice League this week. Also, Punisher on Netflix. We'll get to that. Doomsday Clock came out. We're going to talk about that and what we're reading. Also, yeah, we're going to talk about Psych the Movie. It's going to be coming on USA Network on December the 7th. We talked to the cast and crew at San Diego Comic-Con 2017. And all the stars with us this week. Dulé Hill is with us. James Roday is with us. Corbin Burnson. So much to get to this week, so let's create some room, shall we? What we're reading is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book creator Jerry Conway, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to grab your tablet, your long box, or your laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and pretty much, arguably, the biggest book of the week had to be The Doomsday Clock, number one from DC Comics. Of course, it's the blending of the Watchmen and the DC Comics universe with the team of Jeff Johns, Gary Frank, and Brad Anderson. Some really neat covers on this as well. But basically, what the story does is it dumps you into the Watchmen universe. As a matter of fact, if we're kind of setting a timeline here, it's 1992 is where this thing kind of starts off. And the world is kind of in chaos. I mean, that's definitely not a spoiler. Uh, the, the world, because I mean, it says right on the cover, the end is near. And they kind of get into what's going on and everything that's happening with the world. And it's just this basically this book in the beginning is, or at least for the vast majority of it anyway, is showing the world spiraling and how it spirals. So I won't spoil that for you, and I'm not going to spoil any of this book for you, actually. But it tells you who the principal players are going to be, and there's somebody that everyone is looking for, like the most wanted man, and this is who they are looking for. And I'm not going to tell you who that is, but it'll make sense to, to you when you read this book, or if you've already read this book. Now, another character that we were very familiar with, that we saw in the previews and in the teaser images, is Warshak, right? Well, let's just say that, yes, of course, you do see him, but what I liked about this and what they did is it's not that simple at all. There's very much, there's a lot of mystery surrounding this character. And then slowly but surely, if you're a Watchmen fan, you start to get introduced to characters that you definitely recognize. And these are characters you're going to know. And you're like, okay, how is this all going to come together? And how is this alliance really going to be? If you could even call it that. I'm not even sure you could call it that. That's, that's debatable. What, how you feel about that once you actually read this book. And then when it kind of all comes together, you sort of start to understand what's going on a little bit, but not enough. And because I think this is a 12-issue series, normally event series are what, like eight issues, six issues, something like that. This is a 12-issue series. So if there was ever a chance for you to have a slow burn, then this is it. This is exactly the, This is exactly what this first issue felt like, is it felt like the beginning of a very slow burn. I'm not going to say it was like a zero issue because you get some 
substantive stuff that makes sense and how everything's going to start. But at the same time, it felt like the uh, the very, very beginnings of something. And as far as a connection to the DC universe, we don't really get that until the very, very end of this book. And it's funny because the way that they do it, it, it's, it very much ties into who they're looking for in the Watchmen universe. And how they do it, who they decide to choose from DC to pair this with, it just made perfect sense to me. I mean, this this was definitely not a surprise, but it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't like, a, well, I saw that coming a mile away type of thing. Even though I did know who it was going to be, it, it makes perfect sense. And I just think it's a good pairing. Now, the question is, how do they get there? And how interested am I in how they get there? First of all, the art is gorgeous. You will not be able to turn away from the art in this book. It's so authentic. It's so just detailed. One of the best pieces of art I think that DC Comics has going right now. And that is, that's saying something because there's a lot of good art in DC Rebirth. So the art's fantastic. The story, I'll be honest, I was a little in and out at times only because it's been a while since I've read any Watchmen. So I'll probably go back and read some Watchmen stuff to sort of, you know, you know, kind of strengthen up my Watchmen knowledge. But at the same time, I was interested once we got about halfway through, once they laid the groundwork, and I'm like, okay, I see where this is going. Let's let's cut this now. And once they laid the groundwork and started getting into the meat of the story, I definitely got interested. And now that they get, you get to the end, then yeah, I'm super interested in see what you're going to be doing now. So kind of not a surprise that Doomsday Clock number one is a pull for me. And hey, 12 issues, let's do this. Here's a comic that, I'll be honest, didn't even know was coming. I don't know how I missed this in the solicits, but if you're a John Wick fan, yeah, John Wick number one from Dynamite Comics, written by Greg Pak, and art is going to be done by Giovanni Valletta. Colors are done by David Carrick. Colors done by David Curiel and In Light Studios. Letters done by Tom Napolitano. And this is kind of a standalone story, I guess you could say, set in Texas. Now, right off the bat, I can tell you, you do not have to be somebody that's seen the John Wick movies to be able to like this book. Because I'll be honest, haven't seen John Wick yet. I know that's on me. I'm sorry. I have a toddler at home, and I can't watch John Wick in front of my toddler. So, I, you know, that, that one's kind of passed me by. Definitely something that's on my list, and that's why I'm reading this comic. But I didn't at any point feel lost, and I know that John Wick is a badass. I know what the character's all about. So I I didn't feel like I was lost in any way, but there are a couple of characters in this book where if you haven't read, if you haven't seen the movie, you might not know who it is and how important it is. So this may be a little bit better for someone who's seen John Wick, and I'm not even saying it was bad yet, because basically we have a story of... Uh, it's almost like wrong place, wrong time, and it's like a, hey, you never know who you're going to run into kind of story is exactly what it is. And we do get a flashback in this. Again, not a spoiler. There's a flashback in this, but it's one of the flashbacks. That not only does it make sense, it's kind of essential because otherwise, if you don't show this flashback in this book, then the rest of it's not even going to matter. You're going to be like, okay, so who's this guy and why do we care that they're crossing paths kind of thing? So laying that kind of groundwork, very, very important. And now... There's a lot of action in this book. And and that was one of the things I loved about it was that you get the the John Wick type action. I mean, even if you've just seen the trailers, you've seen some of the action from the John Wick movies. You definitely get that in this. And what you also get is who the villain is. You're going to you're going to find out 
who the villain's going to be, at least in the first part of this arc, in the first few issues anyway, where this is going to be going and how certain things are connected. So, I mean, it's set in Texas. You know, everything's bigger in Texas. That's the rumor anyway. I mean, I've been to Texas several times. Everything seems pretty normal size there. Love our Texas listeners, but point me in the direction of the things that are bigger next time that I'm there. I mean, just the action is exactly the way it's supposed to be. I didn't feel myself turning away from this book. I was definitely engaged. The art is not great, but it's definitely good. I mean, there are certain pages where it's better than others. I'll be honest with that. But it's good art. It's certainly not something that would make you not want to read the book. And I actually think it'll get better as the series goes on. I just kind of have a feeling. And the letter, actually, on this book, really, really important because when you have the action sounds... The letter or Tom Thomas Napolitano really makes him jump off the page, and it's kind of important in a big action book like this. So you get a good colorist, and you've got yourself a winning book. This is another pull for me, and i got to be honest, wasn't expecting for somebody who's never seen the movies to want to read John Wick on a regular basis. It's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, my spoiler-filled review of the Justice League movie on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is David Bazooz from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's time to unite the league at brunch, and we're going to talk about the Justice League movie that came out. Spoiler-filled from here on out, consider this your warning. If you haven't seen Justice League yet, you're going to want to fast-forward ahead in the show. Again, I'm not going to go into every little scene, every little plot line. I'm going to tell you what I liked, going to tell you what I didn't like, and I know that... I, I've been very vocal on the show about how I grew up a DC fan and how big of a DC fan I am. I will even preface this by saying I didn't hate Batman versus Superman. I liked Suicide Squad and I loved Wonder Woman. So take that for what you will, but I'm just giving you my honest opinions here of Justice League, okay? So before I dive into those opinions, I will give you a little bit of groundwork. Of course, you've got Batman and Wonder Woman who are trying to put a team together to stop Steppenwolf, who's trying to unite the three mother boxes and bring about kind of the end of the world sort of thing, kind of bring Apocalypse to Earth, even though they don't really say it. We do hear Darkseid's name mentioned. They don't say what's what's happening. That's basically what's happening is, is what he's trying to do. So there's a lot about the mother boxes in there. You see them, again, you kind of saw from the trailer, gave you a very good idea of them going one by one to each individual league member and sort of how the team gets formed. And here's one of the things I did like right off the bat. This was an uneasy alliance. And I'm not saying that in the Avengers it was an easy alliance because this is the only, this, you know, it's kind of the closest comparison. But this was a very shaky, uneasy alliance. They didn't really like each other very much. Not Again, not that there was a lot of love on the Avengers, but you could just tell this was everybody kind of wanted to do their own thing or everybody wasn't really in tune with each other, I guess you could say. But then they sort of found that camaraderie really, really quickly and they just united under the goal of, hey, we got to save the planet here and let's just get on it. And maybe they could have fleshed that out a little bit more. I'm not sure it really mattered. I don't I don't need to see why they like each other kind of thing. It's almost like, a, hey, we've got a job to do, and we've got to do it. There was a line from Ben Affleck in the movie with to Jeremy Irons, who plays Alfred, where he says, you know, I don't, I don't need this world to like me. I just need to save it. And I'm paraphrasing that. But that's kind of the way the theme of the this alliance was. Like, hey, we don't have to like each other, but we all kind of want the same thing here, don't we? So let's just go ahead and do that. Another thing I liked, and I was surprised I liked him as much as I did, actually, was Ray Fisher's Cyborg. I was going into this thinking, okay, if I'm looking at who I like as far as Justice League characters from number one 
to the end. I would say that Cyborg's probably at the end only because I didn't get a whole lot of exposure to Cyborg when I was younger because he wasn't in the Justice League when I was reading Justice League comics when I was younger. So I didn't get as much exposure to him. But Ray Fisher does a fantastic job. We don't get a goofball Cyborg. We do get a Booyah towards the end, which I appreciated. Got a laugh out of that. But it's a very serious, brooding, very much in vain with what the DC Universe has been so far, kind of Cyborg. But you, what that is one character, they give you a reason he is what he is. It's like, look, this has happened to me. I don't like it. I don't like the way people are going to perceive me or look at me. I want to do my own thing. And what you saw that evolution very, very slowly from Cyborg, more so than a lot of the other League members. Very slow evolution of Cyborg to becoming that teammate that everybody needed him to be. And he kind of made that decision on his own with a little help from Wonder Woman. And i got to say, I love the chemistry between Gail Gadot and Ray Fisher, Cyborg. There was just something between Wonder Woman and Cyborg that I really, really liked. There's a, there was connection there. There was a friendship there. And his friendship with The Flash and Ezra Miller, I thought that was starting to evolve a little bit when they were saying, you know, they were the mistakes or they were the accidents or something like that. And that was like their bonding moment. I thought that that was really cool. And if you can say one thing about this movie, and I know there are people that hated it, and I'll get to that in just a second. If you say one thing about this movie, the chemistry between the cast... I thought, as far as the League members were concerned, was really, really there. I found myself wanting more from this team. Now, I'm not saying that I want another Justice League movie, like, right away. I will, again, I will get to that here in a second. What I'm saying is, is that they seem to work well together. They played well off of each other. I thought Aquaman played off Batman very well, Batman off of Flash, and, and even, you know, Arthur Curry and Bruce Wayne, stuff like that. I thought they just played very well off of each other. It was enjoyable to watch. So I, I think that the casting for this actually ended up being right almost across the board. So before I get too gushy on this and make you think that I loved every second of it, let me switch gears for a second and talk about stuff that I didn't like. First of all, Steppenwolf, and I said this before, come on, really? Your first Justice League movie and it's Steppenwolf. That's going to be your main villain. And I get it. He's basically just a placeholder for Darkseid. And, and that's your way to usher him in. Now, you could have done a lot of other things. I'm not saying don't use Steppenwolf ever. I'm just saying you could have saved him for when you use Darkseid. And then it seems more formidable, doesn't it? I understand that Steppenwolf is a tough dude. He's a badass. Sure. Did I think for even a fraction of a second he was going to win this thing? Absolutely not. I didn't. And and yeah, he was handling Wonder Woman. And during the one of the during the final fight, he was taking on Aquaman and Wonder Woman by himself. Bravo to you for that. But if I leave the theater feeling like the Parademons were the scarier and more powerful threat than the main villain Steppenwolf, that's a problem. And that's exactly how I felt about Steppenwolf and the CGI. Yeah, it was bad, but I just want to... Let me go off on a tangent for a second about CGI. Because I think saying, oh, the CGI in this was terrible and using that for a reason to hate the movie, come on, it's time to stop that, okay? Honestly, I get it. It's not always aesthetically pleasing, but when's the last time you saw a CGI movie that wasn't done with the Lucasfilm CGI that you actually thought looked good and authentic? Be honest. Come on. And that includes Marvel Studios, by the way, because they're using Lucasfilm's technology to do, the, to do their CGI. CGI is just not everybody's thing. I'm not even saying I like it. I just said 
I didn't like the CGI on Steppenwolf. But CGI, I guess, is just something we're going to have to get used to in these movies. So using that as a reason to not like a movie, that's ridiculous. Need to stop it. Is it not like Superman's mouth? Yeah, that bugged me too. But is that going to be the reason I didn't like the movie or didn't like the way Henry Cavill played Superman in this movie? Absolutely not. So now that I've gotten on, on that tangent, I think... This is the closest they've gotten to getting Superman right since Christopher Reeve in this particular movie. Yeah, you had the whole angry Superman when they first woke him up. But hey, you get woken up from being dead for X amount of weeks and months and see how chipper you are when you get out. See if you remember everything. So, I mean, I think that that's kind of accurate, isn't it? And it didn't last very long. You know, you see the love of your life and you come back to and everything sort of writes itself, doesn't it? He became Superman again. And it was in that final fight. I'm not saying he was that Superman from the entire movie. He wasn't even in it that much. It was in that final fight, in that one of those final moments with Cyborg, where they're trying to rip the mother boxes apart. And they do that. And then you have the kind of laugh between the two of them. And he's like, never mind, I want to be dead kind of thing. And that I'm like, there he is. Right there. That's Superman right there. When he's saving the people with the Flash, that's Superman. When they're racing in the end credit scenes, that was the Superman and Clark Kent that we want, isn't it? So it's, it's almost like they're learning, and that's going to be a main theme for me at the end of this, is that they are learning from their mistakes that they've made in the past few movies. But moving right along to something else I didn't like, story-wise... It was a bit all over the place, wasn't it? I mean, it was a little bit clunky, sure. It's almost like tripping out of the starting gates. And then, you know, you hit your stride a little bit, and then you find a pebble on the track. You kind of trip over that, too. But you're not down yet. You're still moving. You're not down yet, but you're stumbling. I think that that's kind of the way this entire movie went from start to finish. The flow wasn't really there. You kept jumping from one thing to the other. The thing where they cut to the family... Yeah, where the parademons were invading and where Steppenwolf was kind of making his stand. I thought cutting to the family a thousand times in that movie was unnecessary. I got what they were going to try to do with that family and make them the sort of beacon of hope kind of thing. You know, you're going to save this family and that's going to show you that there's more hope in this universe now. I got that they were going to do that. Okay, so I didn't need to see a thousand cuts to that family to understand what was going on. And I didn't think for a second that the dad was going to go out with the shotgun and try and take on the parademons either. So keeping on doing that, I thought was a little bit clunky. I thought that they kind of bounced around a little bit too, too much, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't terrible. The basic thing I'm trying to get across here is that this was not nearly as bad as the critics say it was. It's not nearly as bad as whatever. If you want to trust Rotten Tomatoes critic scores, knock yourself out, okay? I will not begrudge you for that at all. If you want to trust it, fine, go ahead. But it wasn't as bad as it made it out to seem to be. Was it also the greatest thing ever? Was it a home run ball? Absolutely not. There was. It was not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. I actually thought that Ben Affleck wasn't as good as Batman in this movie as he was in Batman vs. Superman. One of the one things that seems like everybody can agree upon in Batman vs. Superman was that Ben Affleck hit a home run playing Batman. And everybody started to get excited about Ben playing Batman in the future, and it looks like that's not even going to happen now. But now I kind of don't mind it, because it's not that I hated his performance, and there were certainly good parts about it. And he was sure a more hopeful Batman 
this time, which I don't mind given the theme of the entire movie. But what I'm saying is, is that it seemed more on the nose in Batman versus Superman than it did here. Maybe I'm crazy. I don't know, but that's just kind of how I felt about it. So basically what I'm saying to you is, is that this movie was kind of a middle of the road type of movie. And maybe you need it to not be because it is the Justice League. But this right here goes right to the point of what I was saying before. What we've said on the show in the past was that you're getting the order incorrect. I actually thought maybe there's a chance that they can make it work. You're getting the order incorrect because there was there was a couple scenes with Aquaman where you find out where you are in the timeline with Aquaman and it's like, really? You're going to do the league before this? I don't understand why you do that because you leave some people lost on what's going on. It's like, wait a minute. So who is she and what's going on? Now we know it's Mara. Okay. We know that already. We do. But the general movie going public who I'm going to thump this until I, until everybody gets it. The general movie going public also needs to love these movies and understand what's going on. And if that box office number from this past weekend doesn't tell you that, then, then I don't know what to tell you at this point. Because making under $100 million, while it sounds ridiculous to call that a failure, is an absolute failure. And it's because people saw that Rotten Tomato score that don't love these characters like you and I do and said, you know what? Nope. Never mind, not spending my money on another one of those. And you can blame that just as much on Batman versus Superman and Suicide Squad to a degree than you can on anything else. Even though Wonder Woman was in it, that wasn't enough for people to plunk down their money because they knew they weren't just going to get a huge dose of Wonder Woman, even though there was plenty. And again, Gal Gadot was, was amazing in this movie. But you have to give the general public something to go on. I also thought that the relationship between Barry and Henry Allen wasn't as strong in the movie as it was in the TV show. And I know I shouldn't compare the two. I really, really shouldn't. Totally different universes, totally different circumstances. But again, another thing that kind of drove me nuts was the effects for Flash when he's doing his thing, when he's running, they overdid it. I'm sorry. It was overdone. You don't need to do all that. The whole thing doesn't need to turn blue. It doesn't. Everything doesn't need to be in slow motion, okay? Even when he charged the mother box, I'm like, it's just, it looks better on the TV show. And I guess props to the people at uh, DC Entertainment and the CW and Warner Brothers for putting out a great Flash product. I just, it's not even that I prefer Grant Gustin over Ezra Miller. I actually think they're both fantastic. I thought Ezra Miller was one of the best parts about this movie. But the effects... We're so overdone, and I'm not saying you've got to dumb it down, but at the same time, like what they did with Cyborg, I thought was great. What they did with Superman this time around, I thought was also good, other than the CGI mouth. Even Aquaman, I thought those effects were really, really good. But then with The Flash, you overdo it. Why? Because you feel like you need to give him more attention? He doesn't need attention. Ezra Miller brings the attention to him anyway. You didn't need to prop it up any more than it already was. So I just thought that was a little bit annoying, too. So... There was a lot of rise and fall in this movie for me. I think that there were moments for me as a fan where I just smiled saying, yes, we're finally getting this. I'm so, so happy that we're finally not dragging our feet anymore. We're getting Aquaman on the screen. We're getting the Flash on the screen. We're getting Cyborg on the screen. We're getting Commissioner Gordon on the big screen again after so many years. You heard the 1989 Batman theme in the movie. How great was that as a fan? You had to smile from ear to ear. When you heard that, when you get the reference to the wind-up penguins. If you're a true diehard DC fan like I am, there are plenty of moments in this movie 
that you had to love. If you're not, then I understand why you might have hated it. But also, can we stop? Can we stop with all the whole Marvel versus DC garbage? Can we stop with all the hate about oh, ha ha, this movie only made ninety six million dollars? Why would you want it to fail? Because if these things start to fail, then everything starts to fail. I don't. I'm not saying that if the DC universe doesn't succeed, that Marvel movies will go away. What I'm saying is, is that studios tend to shy away from certain things. Okay, once it starts to fail. And don't think that a DC movie failing can't affect a Marvel movie because for people that don't know these characters again like you and I do, to them garbage is garbage. And if they and if one Marvel movie fails close to a movie like Justice League, then the snowball starts to go down the hill. So I'm not saying you need to root for it to succeed and root for DC to succeed, but stop rooting for stuff to fail. That's just ridiculous. It just doesn't make any sense. So... Without further ado, going to give my rating on Justice League. I think I've talked to death. I think I've said enough. I, I, I don't Oh Well, wait a minute. We've got to talk about the end credits scene, so I'll do that very quickly. The race between Superman and Flash. I love the stakes. I, I love the callback to the brunch joke. thought that was funny. I thought that was one of the better jokes in the entire movie. The second one, that was the one that really got interesting, wasn't it? Because you see that Lex Luthor has escaped with a little bit of help from his friend, Deathstroke and Joe Manganiello. Really quick, the look for Deathstroke, both, both the suit and the look without the, without the helmet on, brilliant, comic accurate, well done. Can't wait to see more of Deathstroke in the DC Cinematic Universe. But then we find out that Luthor wants to create a league of his own. Yeah, so we might get the Legion of Doom on the big screen. I don't even care who's in it at this point. I mean, you could have your guesses, but I don't, I'm not even sure I care who's in it at this point. I, I was just happy to see that. So there were other things I, ha- I was happy to see. You know, you saw a little flash of Green Lanterns up there. Maybe even a little flash of Shazam at some point. So there were so many Easter eggs in this movie. So many things to make a DC fan happy. But at the same time, the pacing was a little off. The villain was weak. There are moments in the movie that just made me go, ah, did you need that there? Or ah, I'm just not a huge fan of what you did there. So... I've got to give this a higher rating than I gave Batman versus Superman, but I've got to give this a lower rating than I think I gave Suicide Squad. So I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with seven and a half exploding parademons out of ten. All right, now let's clean up the goo and continue with this week in Geektainment. My spoiler-filled review of The Punisher from Netflix is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Van Jensen, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to go to your nearest Skull Shirt retailer and fire up the van because it's time for my spoiler-filled review of at least some of The Punisher on Netflix. I'll be honest, I'm only going to do like the first eight episodes of this. I think for streaming shows, that's kind of a good wheelhouse. I mean, we did that with with Future Man, and I think we're going to do that here with The Punisher as well. Of course, John Bernthal reprising his role as The Punisher. And again, not going to go through every episode, every inch of this show. But I will say this, from what I've seen a very much grounded Frank Castle. We don't get the maniac Frank Castle. I mean, you still get the out-of-control Frank Castle at times, but for the most part, very grounded. And some of the stuff in this that didn't even have to do with Frank Castle at all, but I'll get to that in a second. Basically, one of the things that I thought was interesting, in the first couple episodes, I'll be honest, I was bored. I know, maybe I'm crazy. I was bored. I thought they kind of rushed through the 
I'm going to take out everybody that was involved in killing my family thing. I thought that in the first two episodes, and maybe that was my fault. Maybe I should have known better that they were going to get back to that at some point. So I was a little bit bored in the first two episodes. I wasn't sure where the show was going to go. And then once the onion starts to get peeled a little bit in episode three, and you see him run into Micro, who's played by Eben Moss Bachrock, it, it just made sense after episode three. It's like, okay, so that's what they're doing. And, you know, they're not going to be adversaries. They're going to be working together. And I mean, I know from Punisher lore who the, quote, good, good guys and bad guys are, okay? But at the same time, in these Netflix shows, you don't really know where this is going to go until it actually happens. So that I just had to throw that out there. So once it actually got rolling in episode three, I really started to dig it, and you saw the flashbacks to Afghanistan and everything that they did over there, and that controversy over the tape and the execution of the prisoner, and then you find out, as, as Frank's investigating this, you find out how deep this really goes, and, and it's kind of mind-blowing, but here's another problem that I kind of had with it. I had this figured out, like who was on whose side, pretty quickly, like Billy Russo, played by Ben Barnes. You kind of knew he was working with Agent Orange, right? I mean, come on. You had to know that he was working with Rollins. It was really obvious. Even in the flashbacks, I'm like, man, he pulled him off of him. There's got to be something going on there. So I figured that out pretty quickly. I mean, maybe I just figured that out because I was paying a lot closer attention than I expected. Or, or maybe it was just that easy to figure out. I mean, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? But once you finally, once, once that was actually revealed... That's when things started to really, really ramp up. And then he goes and looks for his old buddies to try and find out, okay, who recorded the tape? Who had this information? Stuff like that. But then you also see the relationship between Frank and Dave Lieberman grow with Micro. And not only that, it's the, how Frank is kind of helping out the Lieberman family. It started off as an intimidation tactic. And then he kind of becomes, I'll say involved because that's the only word that really comes to mind right now becomes involved in the Lieberman family, and it really becomes a close relationship between Frank and David Lieberman. And I thought that that was very interesting. And you see when, when Frank's bleeding out in the woods, and he, you know, he kind of rescues him. That was a really cool moment for me. And I, I didn't expect such an emotional moment between those characters in a show like this. So just to establish that and establish somebody else that Frank can actually trust I thought it was a really important moment because trust, obviously, one of the biggest issues for Frank Castle is trust. That that goes almost without saying. And then taking it beyond Karen Page, I thought was very, very important. Even though she's still an important part of Frank Castle's life, you take it beyond that and you start to find out, okay, who can he trust and who can he not trust? And then there's times where you might see that trust ripped away as well. So... Very cool that they decided to do that and give it another another lane to go to. Another part of the show that I thought was very interesting is, yeah, there was a little bit of politics involved here, you know, you know, about guns and about certain other things that are going on in our society right now. But what we also get a kind of a deep dive into is just trauma in general, not just PTSD, but trauma. I mean, the whole thing that happened with uh, Daniel Weber's character, Lewis Wilson or Lewis Wal- Walcott, whatever you want to call him. I mean, that was just, I mean, yeah, you you kind of felt bad for him, then you didn't like him, then you felt bad for him, and then you were just on edge every time you saw him on the screen. So, I mean, if that's what they were going for, that's exactly how I felt. Every time I saw Lewis on the screen, I was nervous because I didn't know what he was going to do. He was a complete loose cannon. I had no idea what was going to happen 
every time that I saw him. So bravo there. If that was the goal, you guys accomplished it because that's exactly how I felt. And then you see how that kind of all starts to unfold as the show goes on as well. One other problem I had with this show, and I know that you guys might get mad at me for this, but I've got to be honest. Special Agent Madani didn't need to be in the show at all. I know I haven't finished yet. I know, I know I've still got a few episodes to go, but let me, let me be honest. It's not that she wasn't a strong character. It's not that she wasn't a strong female character. She was actually a pretty darn good special agent in charge. And, you know, especially, you know, it was a boys club, you could tell. And then she gets in the driver's seat and does a good job. And she actually wouldn't let it go as an investigator. She did very, very good. All I'm saying is, is that you remove her from this story and what does it matter? It, it, I mean, yeah, there's a connection there with Afghanistan, and she was over there too, and she wants to find out what Frank Castle knows and all this different stuff. I get it. I understand what they're doing. But again, you could have kind of thrown that in at the end, giving me more Frank and Micro, or giving me more Billy and Agent Orange. Give me more of that, and we don't really need Madani to be in the story, and you didn't really need the connection with Billy Russo either. I mean you're already going to hate Billy Russo anyway for what he does to Frank Castle. You don't need to throw Madani into the mix as well. So, And even with the Lieberman family, I thought that was a much more compelling story than, than Madani as well. So, I mean, I could have done without her. Did it make me hate the show? Absolutely not. But it's like, if you took her out, would you have lost anything? And do you gain anything by having her in there? I didn't think so. So as, as far as I got, the intrigue ramped up, and there was a point where I was like, okay, is this really going to be a threat to Frank Castle at all? And then they established that in the last couple of episodes that I saw, and in 7 and 8, you find out, okay, yeah, this is a legit threat. This is something that he might not actually walk away from. And in any Punisher series or in any Punisher scenario, I need to know that there's a chance he might not walk away because that's what makes it a compelling story for me because he is such a bulldozer all the time. I need to see that chink in the armor. I need to see that maybe this is the one time that not only does he need help, he might not survive this either. So I'm definitely looking forward to finishing The Punisher on Netflix. Going to power my way through it this weekend. And I'll be honest, even though it started off slow for me, it's definitely picked up. From what I've heard, the ending definitely is satisfying to this series. So looking forward to find out exactly what happened. So if I had to give it a rating from what I had so far, let's see, not one batch, not two batch. How about seven batches out of ten? I think that's what I'll give Marvel's Punisher on Netflix. Coming up next, we've got a boatload of nerd news, even in a holiday week, next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Addy Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's not that very often Congress gets involved, but it's time for nerd news. And I really wanted to kick things off with this story because I think it is a huge story. And I think it's even going to grow even as I'm recording this. So I'm not going to say how many investigations there are, but I'm going to focus on the fact that House of Representatives Chris Lee, a Democrat from Hawaii, is going to be is is investigating the predatory behavior of loot boxes in video games. As a matter of fact, the crosshairs have really been on EA and Star Wars Battlefront 2 with this. They actually shut down their microtransactions store. And basically what Lee said about this, and I'm going to quote what his video said. He said, it's a Star Wars-themed online casino designed to lure kids into spending money. 
And I don't think he meant for this to be funny, but he did also say it's a trap when he's talking about a Star Wars game. But there is no laughing matter about this. And and I don't want to go into all of the details of everybody that's investigating and all the things that are going on right now. But let's be honest here. I think we've known for a long time as gamers or anybody that talks about games or covers games or anything like that, haven't we known for a long time that loot boxes are gambling? Haven't we known that microtransactions are slowly destroying the video game industry? I think we have. So I think that if this is kind of what gets rid of microtransactions, I think that that's a good way to go because I don't think gamers are ever going to get rid of microtransactions on their own. Gamers just, whatever they can do to, to up their gaming experience, no matter how much it costs or no matter how much they complain about it, not enough gamers will just stop buying the game or stop participating in these microtransactions to ever make it go away. And I, I mean, I get it, okay? I really, really do. You, you love the game. You want to get your full gaming experience. It costs way too much money. We can all agree on that, but a lot of gamers just can't help themselves. And I'm not judging you for it. I actually understand it. You you want to play all these DLCs. You want to be able to get the best weapons and all of these things, especially... In a multiplayer setting, when you're getting your ass handed to you, when you're playing against somebody that's, that has spent the money on these loot boxes and microtransactions, and it's hard for you to keep up, and it almost lessens your gaming experience. But the publishers have to be held accountable for this at some point. And if the gamers aren't going to do it, and I don't necessarily want Congress involved in video games, don't get me wrong, I don't need law enforcement to be involved here, at least I don't want them to be, but if that's what it takes... To finally get rid of these loot boxes and return video games to the good storytelling in the box that you buy or in the game that you download, then I'm all for it. Let's do this. Let's get the House of Representatives involved. I know that Paris is involved as well and a whole bunch of others, I'm sure as I'm talking right now, are jumping in on this. If we can make this go away by getting the government involved, then that's just what needs to happen. Now, you and I both know in any scenario like that, it's probably going to take forever. It's not going to happen overnight. But as gamers, we can decide to stop this by just not participating, not purchasing. Either don't purchase the game at all or just don't buy the loot boxes. And I understand that that might lessen your experience. But again, it depends on your definition of what a full experience is for a game. I think if I can finish it, if I can physically finish a game and the storyline that I'm being given, then I'm good. I don't need anything extra. I bought the game to play the game in the main storyline anyway. Then I'm good. I don't need anything extra beyond that. Now, if there's a DLC or something that looks interesting, I might do it. But actually, I'll be honest. This is one of the reasons I stopped playing DC Universe online. And I'm not saying that they, are, they have predatory behavior. I don't want that to be put out there at all. And this was years ago that I played this game too. But one of the reasons I stopped playing was, was that there were so many expansion packs and DLCs and all these other things that you could buy to kind of increase the experience of the game or make you go further or give you different worlds and different raids that you could conduct. And I'm just like, man, no, I just, you know, I'm, I'm having fun doing what I'm doing now. But then it got to the point where it was actually hampering me from being able to complete the game in a timely manner and to get the experience points is the best way I can think to put it, that I needed to upgrade my armor, I had to play the same raids and stuff over and over and over again. And yeah, that got tedious. It's almost like you're forcing me to get these DLCs just so I can have a new atmosphere. But then I realized that it's going to be just as old, isn't it? 
if I do it that way. So why would I push myself to do that? So that's one of the reasons I actually stopped playing that game. And that was a free game too, by the way. It's not like I paid to play DC Universe online. I played, I paid nothing. So even if I bought a DLC here and there, it wouldn't have broke the bank for 10 bucks. But I just decided that that's not something I wanted to do. And partly because I'm cheap. I'll admit that. But at the same time, we can stop this. Like, I just stopped playing. And, and I know that these games aren't going to go away because I stopped playing. But if these, if we stop playing and we say no to this kind of stuff, it'll go away. Trust me. When losing money is the best way to make something go away for any company at all. Look at Mass Effect. Perfect example. Not even talking about microtransactions. With gamers lost interest. Stop buying the game. Bye-bye. Mass Effect. So think about that the next time you go to buy a loot box or a microtransaction. Here's a story, though, that the Harley Quinn fan in me got really, really excited, and then I saw who was involved in this, and I got even more excited. Harley Quinn going to be getting her own R-rated DC digital service series. This is from Deadline, by the way. That's who broke the story. And not only is she going to get that animated series, but friends of the show, Patrick Schumacher... And Justin Halpern, yes, of Powerless, teaming up with Dean Laurie as well from Warner Brothers Animation, going to be bringing this show to the new DC-branded direct-to-consumer digital platform. 26 episodes, half-hour adult animated action comedy, and guess what? We might even get Margot Robbie, who of course was Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad, to voice the character as well. Man... This just has me excited. I know, maybe it's kind of a, hey, Deadpool has his own animated series coming to FXX. Now they're doing it with Harley and they're kind of mirroring each other. I don't care, okay? I really don't care. I'm just happy that this is going to be happening at all. And, and I'm just, man, this really shows you how much DC has faith in their direct-to-consumer streaming channel. And what have we said on the show a million times before? If you're going to make me pay money, for something like this, give me enough content to justify it. Don't just give me one show. Give me a variety of things to choose from. And don't just make it your library. I know that we're going to get library stuff in this as well. It's going to take more than just that. I need something else. So now we've got Titans. We've got Young Justice. And now we've got a Harley Quinn animated series. And I don't think they're done. I think that there's going to be way more to this as we go on. This is just a third show. And if you, if you did not see Powerless... I thought it was funny. I still miss Powerless. I still like the show. I'd still like to see Patrick and Justin do an animated version of Powerless if that was possible. I don't know if you'd get the cast back to voice their characters, but I think you could do a lot with a show like Powerless in animation as well. I just see the successful endeavors for DC really piling up in their TV and now their streaming service, the comics. Once the movies catch up, and from what I saw in Justice League, I do have hope that the movies will eventually get there. DC is dominating a lot more than people give them credit for, I think. Because you look at just movies and you go, well, you know, they don't really have it together. So they're not they're obviously not doing so well. That's not true at all. They're doing very, very well in almost everything else. And their animated movies have been stellar for the most part. So now you bring in an animated series and you spotlight Harley Quinn. I think that that's really, really, really smart. Can't wait to see where this one goes. Going to jump to the comics for a second before we talk about a new trailer. Mark Millar revealed on comicbook.com that a new Hit Girl ongoing series was going to be coming, and it's kind of time. And he, he actually told them 
that, you know, it's kind of coming up on the 10th anniversary here. So it just really made sense to do kind of a relaunch of everything that's going to be going on. And this story is actually billed as the hit girl being back, pint-sized Punisher meets Polly Pocket, has left America behind and set off to serve justice around the world. And it's actually going to start in Colombia. Now, Millar's going to write the first one himself, Ricardo Lopez Ortiz it's going to be part of the art. It's going to be a bunch of covers as well. Here's the thing that jumped out at me when I saw this stuff. Kevin Smith. Yes, that Kevin Smith is going to be writing the second arc of this book. How interesting is that going to be? Kevin Smith tackling Hicker on Kevin Smith writing comics again in general. I am super interested to see what Kevin Smith does with Hit Girl. And, you know, we just we got that reveal that there's going to be a new Hit Girl as well. They didn't really get, Mark didn't really get specific as to whether or not this is going to be a new Hit Girl or the continuation of the Hit Girl that we know. Either way, I am in on this. You want to bring in a new Hit Girl? Fine. You want to see the same Hit Girl? Fine. Just give me this series because I think it's been about time. To, the, to do the relaunch. And this is going to actually come out in February of 2018, February 21st to be exact. If you want to, you know, just give a heads up to your local comic shop that you want to be talking, that you want to be reading Hit Girl when it comes out in February. Now, normally this isn't something that we do at the end of Nerd News, but I want to do it this time. We're going to talk about the season three trailer of The Magicians that actually dropped this week. And now we remember, again, spoilers if you haven't seen season two, but magic is gone. It has disappeared. There, no one has any magic, and we find out in the trailer that that's just that's not just the main group. It's fillery, it's break bills, it's everything. There is no magic anymore, and we see in the trailer that how there's kind of a fallout for that, and everything that's happening to all of these magicians who are now sort of powerless, and how it affects Alice as well, or how much of, le- of Alice is left in there, if it's Niffin, there's, you know, whatever interpretation you want to have of Alice. You really see how it affects her. So we we see that magic is gone, but we also see maybe not for good because we know from the end of the se- of season two that something's going on with Julia. She has something, and and she finally shows everyone that there is some sort of magic that she has, and nobody's really sure what to do about that. But we, what we're going to get is what I think is going to be an amazing part of this upcoming season is that Elliot is going to lead a group on a quest to rediscover magic and to bring magic back. And you know from watching this show that is going to be one epic and at times I'm sure hilarious quest. And then you see Summer Bischel in there doing Margot's thing and she's rocking the eye patch again and she's dropping all kinds of references that we loved from season two. That's really where the show turned from season one to season two. It was always fun and there was always a reference here and there, but it really decided to go all out, break the fourth wall at times, it was just a really, really good season last season, and this season seems to even pick up more, and we're going to see Elliot, it seems like, in a little bit more of a leadership role. We always thought that Quentin was going to be the, well, the one that was the leader, or at least it seemed that way, and then you slowly see the transition to Elliot and Margot actually, being the leaders as well, and everybody's kind of found their footing on the show now a little bit, it seems like. So we're going to see this quest to find out how they're going to be able to bring magic back. And it was just wall to wall. Just They were throwing different scenes at you and things that are going to be coming up in the next season. This is how you do a trailer. Okay, you want to hype me for season three of The Magicians in 2018? 
do your trailer like this. So whoever put that trailer together did a brilliant job. You showed me all the characters I loved. You gave me little tidbits. You showed me some characters that you introduced me to in season two that I kind of loved that are going to be back for season three, apparently. Well done. Can't wait to see The Magicians season three when it comes out next year. That's going to do it for Nerd News. And up next, time to talk about the Psych movie that's going to be on USA Network on December the 7th. Going to talk to the cast and producers next on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hey, this is Hale Appleman from The Magicians, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Looking forward to the Psych movie coming out on December the 10th, and I'm going to take you back now to San Diego Comic-Con 2017. We talked to the cast and crew of the movie. Let's start with star James Roday. What about for you guys coming back? You talked about that in the panel earlier, how it was just so good to be back with everybody in the yeah. cast. How was it like that first day shooting, just kind of getting back into that groove? The first day was a little surreal. Because in some ways, it was like no time had passed. And in other ways, you did sort of feel like the four years of not having seen a whole bunch of people that you, you know, you're very, very fond of because they're all Canadians. Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, we, obviously it was very special, but it was also like, it took, you know, it's, it's like you date somebody and, and it's great, but then it doesn't work out and, and then you don't see him for a while. It's like, it's a little bit of like, it's a little bit of like warm up period right. is required. Um, but it didn't take long. You guys talked about the fans a lot, and when you're putting this together, how much of a balance did you try to put between giving the fans of the show from before what they wanted, but also bringing some new stuff to the table as well? I would say uh, this one was probably 90% giving the fans what we hoped they wanted. Um, this really was just sort of a love letter to the fans. I mean, like, like I said on the panel, like if we only get to do one of these, then let's make sure this one is for the fans uh, and then I would say you know 10% was like hey let's let's see if we can come up with some new stuff too because time has passed and there should be some subtle changes right mostly we just wanted to tap into some of those core elements that kept people around for so long and then deliver on that as best as we could yeah Psych fans know we're going to see a much different Henry in this movie, but does that mean a change in hobbies as well? We asked Corbin Burnson. Well, I mean, Henry used to like to go fishing and stuff a lot too, so if he's had a little change of character, does that mean a change in hobbies as well? Uh, no, Henry still fishes. In fact, he's got a, uh, he's moved out of his house, he sold it to Lassiter, and he has a very cool loft overlooking the water where he keeps an eye on his boat. Because he's, nice. he's a guy who's like, I'm not going to get my boat out of my Right. So he's definitely got his boat. It moves into a very hip, cool, chill, loft environment. And, uh, yeah, and he spends money in clothing. <laughs> I was asking Maggie Lawson about the fan reaction to the show coming back. And then from another table, a little bit of an interruption and a spoiler alert. Check it out. Oh, thank you. I mean, James touched on this earlier in the panel about the fans and the fan reaction. What was it like for you guys, not just now, but even over the years, knowing that fans just wouldn't let this go and just wanted to bring this back so badly? I, I, I said this earlier. It's just gratitude, I think, is like I honestly was so lucky. You guys have been so supportive, not just of Psych, but like everything we've done since Psych. Um, what? What did I give away? No, I just said you have a partner. Oh, I do. <laughs> oh. Wait, I forgot I could talk about that. No, we can talk about that. 
Okay, there's so many things we can't talk about about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was literally on the carpet. They were like, What's, what, what can you tell us about the movie? I was like, nothing. Oh, seriously? Like, nothing. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> As a group, I know you know you guys know that. Um, so the fact that we get to come together and do this is such a treat for us, and the reason we get to do it is because of you guys and the fans. We're so lucky. So thank you. Kirsten Nelson was trying really hard not to spoil anything, but now Chief Vic of the San Francisco PD talks about if Sean will be trusted there now. You, you talked about the new setting a lot, and we've heard that a lot from, from the people who have been sitting here, but early on in the show, it took some time for the department to kind of trust Sean on a certain level, and even the chief as well. Are we going to see that now that we have a new setting? Are we going to see kind of a, that kind of happening once again? <laughs> this look she's giving me right now is like, you did not just ask me a question. question. <laughs> uh, spoiler! Uh, I probably could tell you that Sean has taken this case on his own. So this is a case that he's working on and it kind of involves the SFPD, but it is not an SFPD sanctioned case. Ah, okay. And uh, we all kind of get a little tangled into his world. Um, and, and I know that they've sent out that first little picture of all of us, you know, oh, it's nighttime, we're very dramatic, we're on the docks, <laughs> we're in peril. I was like, what am I doing with my hands? I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> um, but when we come together as a group, they'll, we have each other's backs. It didn't matter whose case it was or who's involved with it. Now, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And that's where Zach Levi does not know our strength. <laughs> so that's what's Excellent. happening there. Yeah. Excellent. Chatting with Dulé Hill and, of course, all the names that you, that Sean used to make up for Gus on the show. I wanted to put a little bit different twist on that and ask Dulé this. So I think one of the things that fans always loved about the show is the names that Sean would give Gus on the show all the time. And I know how much of a big pro wrestling fan you are, so which one of those nicknames do you think would have made the best in-ring name for Gus? Ooh, best in-ring name. I mean, I still think that uh, Silly Pants Jackson. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, and Hubert guys come out always like laughing and making you, you know, doing things to make you laugh, and that's when he sneaks around and he pins you. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> That'll be his whole little trick. It's like, oh, silly pants is at it again. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, writer and director Steve Franks sits down, and not only does he dig our name, he also dug my last question as well. Down and nerdy pockets, that's a good name. Thank you, man. That's how, that's so, how we do what things. Else? This is the table of people who have the best names, for, I think. Yay! some of them on the other tables, very uninspired. Very. <laughs> Speaking of the budget, what's the pineapple budget for the movie? Oh my, let me tell you something. They went way over budget on the pineapples because we had, uh, we got most of our original crew back, but we didn't get all of our original crew. So many people thought there's supposed to be a pineapple in every scene and every shot. Right. So I spent many times, I would come onto the set and I would say, no, not here. No, not every set, every, every prop guy's on this thing has pineapple. I'm like, no, 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 no. We do it once usually. So I'm hoping it's only there once, but it's probably there like seven times and I missed it. <laughs> 
So, and the great thing about the pineapple, and this is a little secret information, that the pineapple is actually a reference to another pineapple that was in the run of the show. And I'm thinking the diehards will, uh, will, will understand it. Some people won't, but it, it won't matter. They'll still enjoy it. And that was, that was the key, too. Because what's happened in the last few years is people used to not really know the show. It's a culty type of show. And there was, you know, people say, what do you, what do you work on? I go, eh, it's the show. I didn't, I didn't go, eh, like that. Like, I didn't like it. <laughs> I would say, it's this detective show. It's on USA Network. It's called Psych. I would always say, it's called Psych. And they go, oh, yeah, I haven't seen that. There's a guy on it. But now I can say detective show, and it's called Psych. And they go, oh, I know Psych. Are you kidding? And it, that's Netflix. Netflix happened for us. And, yeah. and more people have discovered this show than I ever imagined. And it's increased tenfold since the show ended. And then there's all these great fans that have been burning up Twitter and Instagram and, and whatever social media thing has been invented today and is now on. <laughs> that they've just been, been screaming for this movie. So it's made it easy for us to, to go back and, uh, and say, hey, there's an appetite for this. You know, we're kind of a nice little beacon of light in a, when the world gets a little dark. And it's a great place where, you know, politics don't matter on Psych. And, you know, what state you come from doesn't matter. And your walk of life, everybody's invited to the Psych party. And, and everybody is treated, you know, everybody's treated with respect. And, and everybody's treated like, hey, let's have a good time. And, uh, and you know, families, grandparents, kids, adults. Adults who act like kids—they're all invited, and it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's really nice to be able to provide that, uh, you know. And, and we, we feel like there's sort of a duty to the fans and, and the people who sort of count on it. I think I went—I went deep on that, guys. That was very deep. <laughs> Really looking forward to the Psych movie coming up on December the 7th on USA Network. It's a show that I always loved. A lot of cool references in there. A lot of fake psychic detective work. And just really, really funny in general. So glad that Psych's going to be back for multiple movies, actually. And I'm really hoping that the next one's a Halloween one. I know James Roday said that when I talked to him. I'm really, really hoping that the next one has to do with Halloween. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'd say my voice is pretty much shot, so if you want to hear more from me, go to downandnerdypodcast.com to find out more of the other shows that we've got coming up. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be talking about Happy next week, the show that's coming up on Sci-Fi, the adaptation of the Grant Morrison novel and story. We'll have that coming up next week. We'll have a guest from there. Also, you can find out more about us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly, be good to your fellow nerds, and save net neutrality.